vengeance. I am the knight. I am... Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, how are you this evening, my friend? I'm doing pretty good. Question for you tonight. If there is any maddening inconvenience or societal faux pas that you could escalate to the level of capital punishment, if you were a god king, what would it be? I'll give you my example first. So a very minor thing that I find to be very disgusting and very disrespectful is when people spit gum into urinals. Oh. And I'm like, where the where the fuck do you think that's gonna go? Right? This is a receptacle that only handles the liquids. And why do you put that there? Somebody is going to have to come along and scoop your gum out of the urinal. And for reasons unbeknownst to me, it creeps me out to do my business in the urinal that has gum in it. I find that to be very gross. And so I think that anyone who spits gum into your, into a urinal should be taken out back and shot. People who answer cell phone calls in the theater or even a movie theater but you know what everyone has forgotten to turn off their cell phone at one point or another it that happens but you don't answer the phone no you hit silence you, you disconnect the call you walk outside and you call back or whatever you do not answer the call especially in live theater like oh jesus what the fuck but even in the movies you get dried up back and you just get beaten with playbills until you're done (laughs) oh that's awful yeah i have rarely seen it happen i have heard stories of it happening on broadway and you know actors like Patty Lapone, or before he was completely disgraced, Kevin Spacey, actually breaking character for a moment to tell these people to shut the fuck up. Oh, Kevin Spacey. There's a name I haven't heard said with any sort of respect in many years. Oh, yeah. Well, we were on the Comics XF Saturday night Zoom meeting. I popped on for a little while. Amber was out. I was in front of the computer doing some podcast editing after I'd gotten in from the movies. And I was like, hey, let me see what's going on. And I had just come back from seeing Superman, the original 1978 Christopher Reeve Superman on the big screen, which was an awesome experience, by the way. Yeah. Although it is the thing that reminds me of that because there was a woman who did not shut up throughout the entire fucking movie. Oh, come on, lady. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, usually it was loud enough to drown her out, but there were times... But nonetheless, we'd gotten to talking about Superman movies because I said, oh, I just come back from it. And it's the reminder that Superman Returns, starring Kevin Spacey as Lex Luthor and directed by Brian Singer, the, the horror stories that must exist from that set. Mm. We will always have that great shot of Superman's eye stopping the bullet. There 
are some neat moments in that movie, but a lot of it is self-indulgent and it's way too too much Christ imagery throughout the movie. Yes, Superman is the last surviving son come to Earth to redeem humanity. We all get it. Okay, okay. It's not as bad as Zack Snyder feeling compelled to do that shot with the the Jesus stained glass and Superman. Oh yeah, that that's worse. But all of them, all of them, it's like enough. We don't need the Superman is Jesus stuff. We get it. We've all been there. But I, I might be about to have my John Lennon moment here. So <laughs> y'all can come at me. I'll, I'll deal with it. You're bigger than Jesus, Matt? No, but Superman should transcend any individual religion. He is not a religious character. And may I remind y'all, created by two Jews. Jews. Yep. So I don't think either of them were sitting around and thinking about Jesus when they created Superman. Ah, the Gentiles come along and try to take everything, Matt. Lazowitz. (laughs) (laughs) I am well aware. (laughs) (laughs) But nonetheless, yeah. I'm I'm glad we can have a good laugh here at the start of the show. Yeah, because we're about to go into one that I don't know if there'll be quite as much screaming as in the Hush episode, which I'm editing right now, but there's going to be some head shaking and hand wringing in this one. Hey, we got one story tonight that when it's not too busy being racist, it's being sexist. Oh, and yeah, yeah, no. (sighs) So tonight uh, we are reading three stories featuring more Bruce Wayne than Batman content. The first of which is Night Quest, The Search. Oh, no. This is Justice League Task Force numbers 5 to 6, Batman Shadow of the Bat numbers 21 to 23, and Batman Legends of the Dark Knight numbers 59 to 61. The writers are Denny O'Neill and Alan Grant, with pencils by Sal Voluto, Brett Blevins, Ron Wagner, and Eduardo Barreto. Inks by Jeff Albrecht, Blevins, Steve George, Ron McCain, and Barreto. Colors by Glenn Whitmore, Adrian Roy, and Digital Chameleon. Letters by Clem Robbins, Todd Klein, and Willie Schubert. And edited by Brian Augustin, Ruben Diaz, Denny O'Neill, Jordan B. Gorfinkel, Jim Spivey, and Archie Goodwin. The cover dates are October of 1993 to June of 1994. After his defeat at the hands of Bane, Bruce Wayne refuses to rest, instead going in search of the kidnapped Dr. Chandra Kinsolving and Jack Drake, Robin's father. This will push Bruce beyond even his limits on a quest involving globetrotting adventure, psychic powers, and heartbreak. There are so many places we could start with this one. Mm, Very few of them good. Next to none of them good. So I'll, I'll I'll say this, this as a big picture, broad idea, if you're telling the story of Batman reclaiming the mantle, he, I think necessarily has to be out of Gotham and 
out of the way of Asbat. Like he can't have some kind of front row seat, the the kind of seat that Robin has to see Asbat and how he's not right for this role and his excessive violence and just it's quote not being a good fit unquote so batman needs to be out of gotham for this chapter of the story to work it's even fine that he goes outside of gotham in pursuit of tim's father and saving his love but what this chapter does in the micro of trying to tell that larger story is fucking god awful jesus I have two or three just structural points before we get into the specific content problems here. I've got a question for you. Oh, okay. How many issues do you think Dr. Chandra can solving a character that Bruce Wayne loves so much? He's so willing much. to ask her to marry him. He's going to reveal his secret to... How many issues did this character appear in before Night Quest The Search? Uh, before Night Quest The Search, I'm going to say three. You always go so low or so high as to completely <laughs> screw my bit. You do it uh, every I'm sorry. time, brother. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, 17. Lower. Uh, 12. Lower. Uh, seven. Getting there. A little higher. Eight. 10. Do you know how many of these she does not interact with Bruce Wayne in? Seven. Three to four. I I didn't actually go through each of them, but she doesn't meet Bruce initially, because initially she's Jack Drake's doctor. And in the last one, she gets kidnapped before Bruce can get to her. So you knock that one out. So at least three, if not four of those 10 appearances, she does not interact with Bruce Wayne. And in only one of those, does she interact with him in any capacity other than his doctor? That's weird. That feels like some kind of creepy-ass parasocial attraction there. That is what they call in the medical field transference. That absolutely feels to me like Bruce is so broken that he can't focus on anything and this doctor who's been kind to him he's focused so on her that he thinks he loves her they've interacted outside of doctor patient once in that one issue of nightfall with poison ivy where he goes to the gala or whatever and she's there that's yikes yikes no doctor in their right mind would accept his advances because he's her patient I hadn't even considered that angle, but that makes this story somehow worse. They, like if this story could get worse, that's that's it. They have no relationship outside of a doctor-patient one. And listen, the bad titles have some weird issues with that at this point. Jack Drake winds up marrying his physical therapist. She's not a doctor. She's just, you know, a, a trainer. But still, it's like, I don't think physical trainers sign, you know, a Hippocratic oath or whatever, like a doctor would. There's any legal thing that says you can't become romantically involved with your client. 
but it still always struck me as a little weird. That's very weird. Mm. Second thing, this whole arc, Bruce's entire arc, is eight issues. The opposite of this, Night Quest the Crusade, the Asbats part, is 27. You think they could have maybe distributed these a little better to let this story percolate and maybe have more material to develop the better parts of it and tamp down the worse? There are better parts of this? Like, again, the par- the parts that aren't sexist or racist are dealing with, like, psychic, magic, killing powers. And on top of that, of those eight parts, parts one and two don't matter. No, no, they don't. Nothing happens in those two parts of Justice League Task Force affect the rest of the story. You and could, those folks do not show up in the rest of the story either. Nope. You could read this starting with Shadow of the Bat and have missed nothing. You don't meet your our villain, Benedict Asp, until the first Shadow of the Bat issue. You see his cane at the end of the Santa Prisca, at the end of Task Force 6. They don't make any real headway. If Nightfall ended not with Bruce flying to Santa Prisca, but flying to London, nothing would have changed. Nope. The only reason I feel like they put those two Justice League Task Force issues in there was... Justice League Task Force. Exactly. It's like, hey, this is a new book that each arc has a different writer and each arc has a different team. That was the, the whole thrust of this book was different configurations of heroes for different specific missions. So it's like, hey, we've got this thing where Bruce Wayne is going to need sort of an infiltration team. So let's just put a couple issues of Justly Task Force in there to bring attention to this new title. Nothing matters from those two issues. And you've got some really like, awful Caribbean terrorist characters in there. You've got the DC hero whose name can no longer be spoken because now we realize it's a racial slur. It's not good. No. And and again, we haven't even gotten to the really bad stuff yet. The middle section is probably the least pointless or offensive. It gets real bad in the the Legend of the Dark Knight arc at the back half. Oh my god. The Shadow of the Bat stuff is mostly inoffensive and just sort of there. It introduces the Hood, who is interesting and never appears again. Or he doesn't. Well, he does like 12 years later. He pops up as a member of Batman Inc. That's the next time he appears. So we're talking. 2009 2010 and morrison sort of changes the character he's now working for mi5 or for some equivalent british spy organization but he's still donating his salary to the poor (laughs) nice i I think it kind of turns out that he was working that organization for batman but it still struck me as weird that use of the hood 
and we get Sir Hemingford Gray, Bruce's globe-trotting matches Malone. That is a pretty fun character, especially as Bruce is so insistent upon keeping it up. Yes. I kind of wish when Bruce needed to infiltrate high society and didn't necessarily want to go in as Bruce Wayne, he used Sir Hemingford Gray in the future. Because that would be fun, just seeing him ham it up at some function in Monaco or whatever, where you didn't necessarily want to connect Bruce Wayne and Batman being in the same place. So I had to break out Sir Hemingford again. But yeah, I mean, and that's where you start getting all of the psychic power stuff with Chandra having psychic healing powers and her foster brother, Asp, being able to magnify them, which is a deus. In the long run, the minute that comes up, it's like, oh, well, this is the deus ex machina that heals Bruce's back, and we all know it. Oh, but they have to make it extra dumb. Yeah, we'll get there. Okay. And even that, there's some inconsistency with how they're able to connect them because Tim going through files says Asp didn't appear until he was 25, yet they're able to connect him and Chandra because they knew they were together as kids. So how did that connection come about? There was a lot of lazy bits and bobs in this story. The only good thing in this entire arc is Alfred's arc. Oh, yes. When he finally gets to a breaking point. In watching him slowly over the course of these eight issues or the seven issues he appears in, trying to get Bruce to rest, trying to get Bruce to listen, being concerned, being back in England and thinking about how much it's changed and how much he's missed and how sometimes he regrets leaving the stage and finally getting to a point where even he can't support Bruce's self-destruction. Now, I want to say this was in Grant's chapter. Alfred had this monologue talking about the House of Lords, and I'm like, I don't think you quite have that right, Alan. And as as a guy living over there, I feel like you should know more that the House of Commons is where the you know, actual legislative power is, and the House of Lords is more ceremonial, but um, I mean, I guess good on you for getting that screed in there. Most of it was about the inherited power of the House of Lords, which Mm -hmm. seemed to be what he was really against. And the hood was absolutely a mouthpiece for Grant here. Oh, yeah. Talking about socialist, right? Yeah. About fox hunting being ridiculous. And Alfred has these moments of just shaking his head and seeing what England has become and the line about once the people were loyal to their Lord and the Lord protected their people and that is no longer the way of things. Alfred gets some really good material and that moment where he stands and stares down Jean-Paul and plays to Jean-Paul's ego is just wonderful. Are are you the fucking Batman or are you not the Batman? Who the fuck are you? And then the final moment of that scene after Jean-Paul leaves him in the manor after he's quit 
and he's going to clean this grand house one more time. One last time. With a tear. And it's like, oh. And Alfred's gone for another year and a half-ish. It's not like he comes back the minute Bruce reclaims the cowl. He's gone for, for a while. And how he comes back is just delightful. And so perfectly Alfred. What does Alf do in his time away? He goes back to the stage. Ah, good for him. There's a, a one shot called Nightwing, Alfred's Return, where Dick goes over to England to be like, Bruce needs you, Alfred. So does King Lear. And they, they wind up getting involved in a caper. Someone is kidnapped and Alfred gets involved. And Bruce, meanwhile, of course, is a disaster in the manor trying to do laundry and things. And one day Alfred just shows up on his door. Yes, I read your advertisement in the paper in need of a butler. And, and Bruce, I didn't shut up. And Tim, like, shut up. Because, <laughs> of course, Alfred placed the ad himself. I am here to bottle, sir. Precisely. And he just, he just storms in with the newspaper and is like, yes, I will accept this post. At double my previous salary. <laughs> At least. And then we get into the third part. Ah, fuck. Ah, Jesus, fuck. Just, uh, God, uh, fucking terrible. Ah, Jesus. Uh, What do you want to handle first, the racism or the sexism? The Alfred stuff's really fun. And it is is really fun. It is really good. When Sir Hemingford Gray goes rogue and lights a painting on fire in a hotel to get attention that's fun too uh it is and it's a perfect ploy to like signal to the bad guy i'm in gotham hello i'm here come after me Mm. it's very good very enjoyable but then we have the racism and the sexism yeah. Oh, no, I'm saying we'll start with the racism. Then oh, we'll get okay, to okay. the sexism. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, the racism is real bad. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. Okay. So Chandra was adopted by a real shitheel. Yeah. And, yeah, he's a racist. And the horrifying idea that he adopted a black child... So he could beat her and not feel bad about it is horrifying and terrible, but people suck. And I don't think that that is necessarily outside the realm of possibility. But letting him speak the racial slurs. Yeah, that was real bad. Letting his son, Benedict, Benjamin, the arch foe of this story, also say them. We didn't need that. No. And, and and to be clear, it's uh it's not the N-word. No. But it's very close to that. Like, right? Uh, it's just a slur kind of thing you might expect to see in Song of the South. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's an antiquated slur. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, why are we introducing this slur to people who may not know it? Let these words die. Just very strange very strange decision and this story continues to be lazily written 
because when Bruce and Alfred go to talk to Chandra's adopted mother, she's introduced as Mrs. Asplin and is you know a widow. But when she dies, Alfred calls out another name. He calls her Mrs. Tweedy. So my assumption is she remarried. That was strange. We never found that out. The only way we know she has another name is that Alfred calls out that name as she drops dead from long-distance psychic murder. Yes. Leaves no trace. But in uh, in that middle chapter, we wanted to steal some corpses so we could like do some scientific testing on those not having any traces. Right. By XKGB, because this is, in all fairness, 1993. We're right after the collapse of the USSR. So you can't throw a rock in U.S. pop culture without hitting XKGB somewhere. KG Beast right there. Uh-huh. And uh, this is all awful, and this is painful. And then we get to the very end. Well... Before we get to the very end, something that struck me almost as bad as the racial slurs was the insistence in the text in calling Chandra a slut. Oh, right? yeah. well, that's what I thought we were going to get the sexism. That's definitely part of the sexism. Oh, oh, that's that's leading into the very end. Right. Right. That was just unforced. Right. It didn't feel natural. It just felt like ugly without a purpose right you could you as you as you said narratively the racism has a purpose the racial slurs are inexcusable but narratively it serves a purpose our heavy calling his stepsister adoptive sister whatever it was him calling her a slut repeatedly just doesn't make any sense right because they're they didn't hint at some kind of like unrequited love or anything that might have made this story even worse it's just this repeated reference to her as like just to stand in for her name or you know it's very objectifying and dehumanizing and just just awful and then there's the end oh jesus the fucking end all right so so the doctor Right. Well, they need a way to get her out of Bruce's life. Yes, that's that's clear. And and before we get into that, I'll say that you knew that everybody was dead as soon as uh, what's his what's his name? Asp. Asp. What's his first name? Benedict. Benedict. Of course. Uh, of course. You knew Benedict was dead as soon as he puts together. Oh, Bruce Wayne is Batman. That's the number one sign that somebody's about to die or have their brain melted. And the fact that he said it in front of his goon, it's like, oh, that guy's dead too. Yeah, during a hurricane. So yeah, I this is just the most terrible ending you could possibly come up with in terms of Bruce having a lot of interest and this woman have any having any kind of agency and independence and anything but anyway i'll i'll let you take it from here have fun explaining this shit sandwich buddy thanks i appreciate (laughs) i i was gonna do it but then you're like all right no no please please (laughs) i leave this one to you my friend this is a gift 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's not even my birthday. Uh, all right. So uh, Benedict has been slowly torturing uh, his adoptive sister, trying to get her to comply with this psychic weapon. Like she is the one with the gift. He is merely the amplifier. So to engage in this distance killing, he needs her cooperation. And to do that, uh, she's been drugged. She's been brainwashed, mentally abused. And the story doesn't make this quite clear until we get to like the last five pages. In the process of this abuse, somehow either pharmacologically or mentally or a combination of the two, uh, this proud, independent Black woman has been infantilized. She has been uh, reduced in mental faculties to that of a child. And this book closes with uh, Dr. Consolving at some type of home and we have somebody literally on the page referring to her as a child, and she's clutching a doll. And that's where we leave her. Ta-da! D- did I leave anything out? No. No. <laughs> you hit all the points. I mean, this is terrible. This is, this is one, obviously not believable, and two, just a bad thing to do to a female character and a black female character to boot. Okay. He has used her, a woman who's dedicated her life to healing to kill a lot of people. We an entire even, village. Right. We didn't discuss it, but he murdered an entire village as proof of concept. Yes. I can absolutely see that causing her to have some sort of dissociative episode, but the regressing to childhood before she ever took a life thing just feels icky. It's fridging. Regardless, it's all some kind of fridging. If you needed her out of Bruce's life, the best answer is simply she can't deal with the Batman-ness of it all. I, I never want to be in that position again. I will always love you or... I never loved you. Let's let's be let's be clear. Right. Uh, I I think you're great, Bruce, but uh, this is not for me. Please go get help. Her calling out the transference and saying that you never loved me. You were in a bad place. I was kind to you at a time when you needed it. I've seen it happen with many patients. You need to get your life back. And Good I'm out of here. See you. Or this might be literally the only case where a coma is a better option than what they gave us. Oh my God. A, a coma would have been great here. I, I, I can't get over. I cannot get over. You have a character on the page who calls this grown adult woman a child in the text. That's ridiculous. And also... We, we see her, even before that final bit, sort of flip-flopping back and forth in between this childlike state and her normal adult's mind. While it 
isn't completely clear when she finally uses the last of her power to heal Bruce, him shirtless and her over him cradling him, there is an uncomfortably sexual connotation to that posing, which makes the fact that she is going in and out of a childlike state infinitely more uncomfortable. Yes. And and again, I just want to underline the fact that we have a nurse on the final page of this book saying, quote, Mr. Wayne, she is just the sweetest child. What the fuck is that? What the fucking fuck? And she appears, by the way, less than half a dozen times after this and is never healed of this condition on page. Ah, Jesus. At some point, there's a line much later on, I think actually in Hush, where it's a throwaway line that Chandra had regained her faculties and was there to help when Tommy Elliot did the surgery on Bruce. But she appears a few times in the Azrael ongoing and is still childlike at that point. Why the... Ugh. Bad. It's just weird. No, it's problematic. And we haven't even really gotten into how weird the, you know, suddenly she's got magic healing powers thing is. It is the most machina of deuses. All all of the most advanced medical science in the world, all the comic book medicine and science you could throw at it, and the best idea they had, magic. That's always the issue. When you exist in a world where you know for a fact on Themyscira they have advanced Amazonian science that can heal nearly any wound... Theoretically, no one should be sick. The Amazons could just share that technology and the world would be a better place. But they can't because that removes stakes from a story. So you can't use the comic book technology. So you have to have a deus ex machina that suddenly no one else can use because you need to maintain false stakes. Well, you know, Star Trek... You know, Next Generation handled this type of story pretty well. You know, when Worf has that accident in the cargo bay, he can't live with his disability, you know, and I'm sure there's there's a discourse to be had about that episode. I am not sufficiently versed to engage in it. But at the end, like, he opts for this very risky spinal transplant surgery, right? And it comes with stakes. Like, either, either he's going to be healed or he's going to die. And, you know, there's certainly a recovery to be had from that because it was episodic and not serialized. You know, he's basically back to normal in the next episode. But you you could have done something like that, right? You could have had, you know, some kind of very risky experimental surgery instead of magic touch. Or we exist in a world there with magic. But the magic, or I guess meta ability, because it's she's some kind of healing meta human. It felt like there should have been some kind of stake to the healing, because then it wouldn't just be that. And let's also just point out here that when Bruce is healed, it is when she is in this childlike state and 
I think it's it's very fair to point out that there is a long, terrible history of depicting minority characters as childlike and magical, right? And this this thing just plays into some terrible tropes. Let's see how terrible it is, shall we? Well, that means it's time with NightQuest to search on the big board. Okay. We currently have 249 stories on the big board. That's a lot of stories. It is. I just spent a good part of this afternoon updating the Comics XF ranking on there because it takes forever now because I have to do all kinds of shifting. And yeah, I'm lazy. I'm going to try to try to keep up with it once a week, but ugh. but story number 1 on the big board remains the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year 1. Down at number 50, we have Only Takes a Night. Another Bruce Wayne story, this one where Bruce and Selina go out on a date. And coming at a sexy 69, it's Batman 475, 476, Tech Comics 642, The Return of Scarface. At 100, we have Fear for Sale, Detective Comics 571, where we learn Bruce Wayne's biggest fear is Jason Todd dying. Oops. Wah, wah. Down at 150 is Favorite Things, a Christmas story written by Mark Miller that doesn't read like a Mark Miller story because there's nothing horribly offensive about it. At 200 is A Grim Knight in Gotham, the story of the Grim Knight, one of the evil alternate Batman. And hey, down to 249, White Knight. Boo. Speaking of Mark Miller, though, uh, you know, he's coming back to do some kind of Superman miniseries. Really? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he mentioned it in some kind of interview. It wasn't officially announced, but uh, he's like, yeah, I was in this pool in Dubai and this uh, story came to me fully formed uh, as I was chilling out there with all my Netflix money. Oh, yeah. I'm just seeing the article now. I'm sure it'll be black label. It'll be something black label and it will be a Mark Miller comic. So I would put this above war games at 229, but not very far above war games. Yeah, that's in the re- the region of stuff that has offensive content in it. I'm almost tempted to put a little lower because I mean does this fall into the tr- the truly offensive stuff starts around 240? Does this go down there? Is there enough offensive content in here to drag it down to that point? Those are mostly stories that are fundamentally offensive. I think it has to go above Earth 1 at 242. But this, in spirit, this does basically the same level of offensiveness that 243 widening gyre does but widening gyre does tell that competent story for those five issues i i could go a bit higher on the story but i am not at all sad to see it that low we do have stuff in the 220s to 30s that have offensive content we have days of rage at 227 the Huntress story from the Huntress's ongoing that is all about quote unquote urban decay and street gangs. 
Mm. which has similar issues with race. So that is above war games. And I would probably read these eight issues before I would reread the six issues that are pushed back at 228. Because that is no, that was fundamentally incompetent. Because at least the grant chapters are okay, and the Alfred stuff and the Sir Hemingford Gray stuff is generally enjoyable. You know, I I forgot to talk about uh, Alan Grant's uh, Scottishness in this, but I will say he brought up two things: Bruce saying that he was going to lance a problem uh too scottish and then also what was it the hooray harry yes hooray harry yes that was a fun thing to look up i I knew you would of course you know what i learned is that only the british would call a private school a public school Mm -hmm. only the british I was like, uh, a Hooray Harry is uh, some kind of, you know, fucking doff who would tout his public school upbringing. And I was like, well, that seems very normal. And then I found out, oh, oh no, public that means school private. private yep. <laughs> so yep. weird. The, and the Lansing thing, though, I don't know if that's Scottish so much as he's, you know, this problem is coming to a head as in a boil. So it's literally him. I was like, oh, that's a gross analogy. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that's Scottish or just gross. At least gross. it was set in England. so uh, Very true. Most of the, the weird language stuff makes sense there because it's in England. Uh, there was one weird English spelling, but it was from an English speaker. So I was like, I'll, I'll take it. I'll accept it. Uh, where are we putting this thing? Uh, 228, between Days of Rage and Pushback. Okay. More offensive than Days of Rage, less of a slog than pushback. So it's 227, Huntress, Days of Rage, 228, Night Quest, The Surge, and then 229, pushback. Yes. Our next story is Wayne Manor, Anatomy of a Murder. This is Batman Shadow of the Bat, number 45. The writer is Alan Grant. Pencils by Mike Dutkiewicz, inks by Jerry Fernandez, colors by Pamela Rambo and Android Images, letters by Bill Oakley, and edited by Denny O'Neill and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. The cover date is December of 1995. A 150-year-old corpse found buried in the basement of Wayne Manor sends Bruce on a trip through his family history. So this is a story. Yeah, this is this is a thing that exists. Let me say very quickly about the uh, Shadow of the Bat title. I love how, uh, at least both in Night Quest and what we have here, we have the title page with obviously the the name of the book, Shadow of the Bat falls upon. I love that. It's so it's so ominous. It's so it's so mood setting. Like okay. Here's your topic for this story. Here's the stage. It is set. The the specter of the bat is now upon this thing. Like I I like that. It's like a, as a formula. It's kind of yeah. neat. Yeah, I, they did that for much of the run. They might have it might have waned towards the end, but 
it sticks around for, I think, at least through the first 50 issues of the book. This is not a bad comic, but this is a comic that I don't know if I'm going to remember too much about once we've moved past it. Yeah, it's uh, it's not really a Batman story. The parts that involve Batman don't make much sense, right? We find a corpse in the cellar and we call the police for some reason when it's clear that this is not some kind of recent homicide. Like, what do you call in Harvey Bullock? to do to investigate some 150-year-old murder. And it felt to me like Bullock was almost pulling a Columbo when he first arrives, because Alfred opens the door and he's like, hey, you're Wayne? No, I'm Alfred Pennyworth, the butler. Listen, Harvey Bullock does not run in the same social circles as Bruce Wayne, but he's Bruce Wayne. You know what Bruce Wayne looks like. He's on the front page of the paper regularly well i mean harvey bullock was an actor once so of course he would know what bruce wayne we don't talk about that version of harvey bullock (laughs) earth one is down at the bottom for a reason uh what a bad idea but i do like that he keeps calling alfred alf and then eventually he starts alfred yeah and then he keeps doing so he's like detective hav is here to see you sir the the very worst thing to call Alfred is Alfie. I, I hate that so much. I hate it. Not good. It's bad. It, the only version of Alfred that you can get away with calling Alfie is Michael Caine because then it's a joke. It's a reference. Mm, it's lost on me. Kane's one of Caine's breakout roles was Alfie, the film Alfie. Ah. So I am, I am not familiar with that. It was 66. It was a comedy. And he was the titular narcissistic Cockney chauffeur. So you could call, if anybody called that version of Alfred Alf, he was like, oh, I see what you're doing there. That's Michael Caine. That's kind of funny. But no other version of Alfred. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. Michael Caine. There is a place for a story like this, but I always wished there was a mini series that traced the Wayne family through the generations. Yes. There yes. was a, a mini series in the late nineties, early aughts called the Kents. And it's a Western. It is a flat out Western. That's DC's Western heroes. And Jonah Hex. Joan, I'm pretty sure Hex shows up in there. A lot of those characters kind of come in and out. But it's it's about the American West and Kansas and Superman's adoptive family's ancestors and their history. It's written by John Ostrander, art by Tim Truman for some of it, and Tom Mandrake for the rest. But it's a really solid Western. And I think uh, The Waynes, that's set on the East Coast, and you could start it right around this point with Solomon Wayne, or you could go back a little further to, you know, the revolutionary war Waynes and trace it yeah. through Thomas. And you'd have the Kents as being these, these farmers, the salt of the earth types and many of the Waynes being robber barons. That would be fun to track. And let's, let's take it through the, through the future too. Let's get to, you know, an alternate future where, you know, Bruce has a child or, you know, even Damien growing up and assuming 
the business responsibilities and and how that goes. Kind of a mix of our of our final story tonight. Yeah. We get a hint of that here at the end as Bruce inters the remains of Joshua Wayne, the corpse. And, you know, he thinks that he's the last Wayne. And we know now that there's Damien, so he's not the last Wayne. But he thinks about that. And there is a story to see the rise of the Eastern city with the Waynes as the vehicle. And now, especially through various other stories, we know that there's the Elliots and the Cobblepots and the Canes and all of these other families of Gotham. A story that synthesizes all of that, like Untold Legend of the Batman, but it's the Untold Legend of Gotham. And we track the development of the city would be something I would read. Yeah, especially as these families rise and fall. The downfall of the Cobblepots, that would be interesting. Especially maybe if one of the Waynes, you know, stabs him in the back. Is is a Batman ancestor responsible in some way for the Penguin? There would be an interesting story there. But this is a story of the Waynes being a noble family. Because we find out that this body is joshua wayne the brother of solomon wayne and that he died protecting wayne manor as a stop on the underground railroad while that is a really neat idea i think we run into a problem that is nowhere near as bad as the problem in the first story but we have no black character with agency in a story about the underground railroad no and i don't like that yeah, and, and it's all about if you turn back or if you leave, you know, we'll we'll kill you. Yeah. You can't leave here. I don't know enough about the Underground Railroad to know if that kind of situation happened. Doesn't sound like it's outside the realm of possibility, but I, I would have liked the story more if the the black characters in it weren't so put upon and cowardly. Exactly. Like, what What if, what if there was an Alfred analog in this period who was Black? And in this situation, he was in charge. He was the conductor, and the Waynes just facilitated his work, right? What if in this, you know, clandestine world, he was the man, right? That would be a fascinating thing to explore. But instead, it's very white savior, Literally. Oh, oh, yeah. And Solomon, by the by, I don't think we've seen Solomon Wayne in any of the stuff we've read for the show. He is Alan Wayne's father. Alan, who we know from Gates of Gotham and Court of Owls. And Solomon is the one who worked with Cyrus Pinckney, the architect, to build the Gothic architecture that we know in Gotham which is from a story called Destroyer that we'll eventually cover because it, it's uh, a small, it was a three issue crossover between Batman tech and legends when they were the only three Batman titles. And it brought the Gothic architecture of 89 into the comics, giving Gotham a different look. Ah, very interesting. This story just sort of, it's like, okay, you know, there's, this corpse and Bruce looks into Solomon's journals and finds out that eventually his brother 
went to get these bounty hunters and lead them away so they don't find the escaping slaves and he never saw him again. And so, ah, because his pocketbook, which at least Alfred is the one who says the word pocketbook. So it's a Brit saying a Britishism. It's not like it's Bullock saying it. It has the initials of Joshua Wayne. So it's obviously him. And Bruce figures out what happened and they inter him in the Wayne plot. Beginning, middle, end, boom, boom, boom. Is it a neat idea that the Waynes used what would become the Batcave as a stop on the Underground Railroad? Sure. Better than a fuck shack. But this is just a a very light little one-off that does what it does. I will say Grant resists the urge to do a wink and a nod that, you know, some writers, I'm kidding, would have <laughs> had, you know, one of the slaves who was being moved, his last name would have been Fox. <laughs> there, there would have been some reference that, oh, like that's clearly Lucius's great grandfather. And no, you didn't, you didn't need that. No, he didn't. Not and I'm at all. Glad that Grant didn't try to do anything with that. Although your idea of a conductor on the railroad, if that you could have used an ancestor of Lucius, tie the foxes and the Waynes together, going even that far back, that would have worked. But there, there were a lot of ways you could have done that would have been lazy and terrible. Yes. The art on this one. It's, it's nice. It's, I'm not familiar with uh, Dutkiewicz, and I don't know if he ever did any other Batman work. I don't recognize his name from any of those. So, yeah, it, it just it struck me. It jumped out at me. He's like, huh, I'm surprised that this guy did this and not a lot else. At least for, um, he's apparently Australian, so did not do a lot of other mainstream American comic work. Apparently also did the comic adaptation for Batman Forever. Mm, That's not one I would put on the resume, perhaps. Uh, But the inks here are really good. I like them. It's It's a nice looking story and has a period y kind of vibe to it. So it works. The art, for, and we didn't, I'm really trying my best to remember to talk about the art on each book. Most of the art on the search was fairly unremarkable. None of it was bad. I mean, I like Brett Blevins. I love Eduardo Barreto, but it could not rise above the material that it was being forced to draw. But this story was fine, and I think will be ranked accordingly. Uh, that means it's time to put Batman Shadow of the Bat number 45 on the big board. If we're at 250 now, I'm looking middle. So somewhere in the 140s, 130s, 140s, 150s, somewhere around there. A lot of one-offs in there. A lot of, well, oh, that's fine. It's definitely not going above Batman Judge Dredd at 140. No. Could very reasonably go above Injustice uh, Volume 1 at 149. 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't put it above 143, the Misfits. That's also Grant. That's Grant and Tim Sale. We got a lot of Grant in the area. You got Mud Pack at 145, Sisters in Arms at 146. Those are both Grants. Dude, might wind up increasing that little area of Grants. I'm thinking 147 in between Sisters in Arms, which is the Catwoman, Vicky Vale, Sarah Essen story, and above the Gotham Villains 80th Anniversary Giant. Works for me. All right. Our final story of the night is 24-7. This is Batman Gotham Knights number 32. The writer is Devin Grayson, with pencils by Roger Robinson, inks by John Floyd, colors by Gloria Vasquez and Wildstorm FX, letters by Bill Oakley, and edited by Lisa Hawkins. The cover date is October of 2002. Follow Bruce Wayne and Batman through a typical day in his life. This is, far and away, the best comic Devin Grayson ever wrote. Devin Grayson wrote a lot of Batman comics. This is leaps and bounds, the best thing she ever wrote. Devin Grayson exists right on the edge of problematic creator watch territory, but has apologized actively for her most problematic story. And if Paul Dini doesn't get a problematic creator watch for his weird thing with Zatanna, we can't do the for, to Devin Grayson for her weird thing with Dick Grayson. I see something about Nightwing and Tarantula. Is that the, yeah. is that the thing we're talking about? Oh, yeah. The fact that in an interview she was quoted as saying, I said it was non-consensual. I never used the word rape. Yikes. Ten years after that, she did eventually apologize for that. So she did realize that she did something dumb. But Grayson is really interesting in that she is one of the few comics writers who started out and was recruited through the fanfic community, at least at the time, that was a thing that, you know, was not common, or at least was not talked about. Specifically, like, Nightwing, Arsenal, Slashfic. And there's a lot of stuff with Grayson and the way she wrote Dick. And we'll get to it when we get to some of the Gotham Knight stuff, and especially if we ever wind up covering her run on Nightwing. But we're not here to talk about that tonight. You're reading some of this stuff and you've got this look on your face that is just... I'm I'm just trying to get a sense of her career from uh, Wikipedia. Seems like it's kind of cooled down in recent oh, years. Yeah, no, she has not regularly worked for DC since uh, after Infinite Crisis. Looks like... Kind of the 2005 is oh, where regular work stopped. Yep. yep. Infinite Crisis was 0506. And the, she was reg she was the writer on Nightwing through the Infinite Crisis stuff. And then one year later, there's a new writer and she was off. And she's done a couple of shorts in recent years. But that's about it. But we'll talk more about Devin Grayson's foibles when we get to the story of Nightwing's familial history. Because she is the one who added the interesting wrinkle that Nightwing's mother is Roma. But 
there's some stereotypes and some language in that story that is also problematic, but we're not talking about that story. We're talking about this story. And this story is really, really good. I like this story a lot because it captures parts of Batman that are often forgotten and ignored for the guy who beats up the mentally ill in a bat costume. You're still reading and looking perplexed. Yeah, I'm, I I need to close this. I need to stop. I just get interested in the, the resumes of what these people do and the, like the interesting gaps. Anyway, this is not so much a story as it is a series of vignettes, right? Like Batman in the boardroom, Batman on the, well, not Batman, Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne on the golf course. And just showing that he is very competent, if not excellent, in these realms. But often does his best to not let on that he is. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's a, a delicate needle to thread. Is Bruce Wayne a titan of industry or is he a playboy? I think I think he has to be both, right? Because, uh, you know, it's something like The Dark Knight. We have this young, petulant Bruce who is obsessed with his war. He would sacrifice everything else that the Wayne stood for. He would let it all go. You know, he, he doesn't care if the manor falls apart. He is just this crusader with a singular focus. But I think as Bruce ages, he realizes that the company has value. His name has value. His parents would want him to be successful and to have the company do good work. And so I think he probably grows into what we see in this issue. Like he grows into a guy comfortable on the golf course. He grows into a guy who is at ease in the in the boardroom. This shows a lot of stuff that we don't normally see. And for that, it is very interesting. He's a guy who knows the name of the kid who pushes the mail cart. Yes. He knows the name of everyone who works in that building. I have no doubt in my mind. He's got the memory for it. He knows who all of them are. Even if he gets the kid's name wrong when he first meets him. Kobe. Who the fuck is named Kobe? That's that's a real Mulva type play right there, Bruce. Kobe Bryant. Look, K-O-B-E is totally different than C-O-B-Y. Yes, I'm not arguing. I'm just, I'm giving you a hard time. I Um, know, I know. But yeah, that... That was obvious, intentional, Bruce got that wrong. How he plays those different corporate scenes where Wayne is trying to get this, Wayne Industries, or Wayne Tech, is trying to get this other company to buy in on their green initiatives. And Bruce sort of just swans into the room and talks about how what great PR it is and the tax credits and things. He doesn't talk at all about the moral right of it, he acts like the corporate raider and gives them all of the reasons that they would listen to. And on the golf course, he's talking to this arrogant bigwig who's bought up a bunch of land, hosts no man's land, and he's going to turn it into coffee shops and things. But Bruce is like, you know, 
it's always great to see your name on something like the community center and the guy's like you know you got a point there and he's like yeah i know (laughs) quietly under his breath because he knew he would play to this guy's ego bruce knows how to read people and that's so often forgotten because it's easy to just play him as completely bumbling and he's obviously bumbling i mean on the golf course he's slicing left and right he's not playing as the the sly businessman but that puts these people at ease but we also get little cuts of how batman affects the life of the average person in gotham we see a guy who just got out of prison going and looking for a job and saying that when he was at his lowest and he tried to rob a liquor store, Batman showed up and called him by name and said, you could do better. And the guy realized that if Batman knows him by name, he knows things about him. And so if he says, I can be better, he's probably right. Or we see a couple who are celebrating Batman Day, the anniversary of when Batman saved one of them. It's really easy to write stories about how Superman or Wonder Woman or the Flash positively affect the lives of civilians because they're bright, shiny heroes. But it's important to remember Bruce does this to protect the innocent, not to punish the guilty. Exactly. And so you need those moments or the moment of the the cop who gets in from a shift at 1130 at night and takes his pregnant wife out on a walk because the criminals know that Batman patrols their neighborhood sometime around midnight. So crime just dies from like 12 to 3 because nobody wants to commit street crime when Batman could just be passing by. We get a couple of cute scenes with most of the primary members of the Bat family in here too. This is when Dick was a Bloodhaven PD officer. So we see Bruce sending bulletproof vests to the Bloodhaven PD. We see Tim taking out a bunch of skinheads. We Losers. have a, yep, which it's a little on the nose, but I'll anyway to demean Nazis. I'm good. A really nice scene with Barbara towards the end of this night when everything has died down and he's just checking with Oracle. And in the end, the last thing he asks her is, How's your dad? Both showing he cares about Barbara and about his friend. Because this is the issue right after Bruce Wayne Fugitive ended. So Jim is out at this point. This is also post-officer down. So Jim is retired at this point. And a couple of cute scenes with Alfred and him checking in on the foxes because Lucius had had a stroke and was recovering. And so he's checking in with Tanya and we see Tiffany and Tim, who their ages weren't right, but eh. The Fox kids' ages were kind of a moving target until they became more important in recent years. I like 
just how quiet this issue is. That the only supervillain we see is Two-Face. And that's only because Bruce stops by Arkham every night to do the next move in the chess game that they're playing. Couldn't, though, Harvey play chess with himself? Could, but after a while, I'm sure he does all day. This is a different challenge. You get bored playing against the same opponent day in and day out. You're right. It is. It's just vignettes, but it it comes together to provide a picture of exactly what Batman means to the city, what Bruce Wayne means to the city, and how the two of them make up a whole. W H O L E, not H O L E. That Bruce makes Batman's crusade easier by doing things right in the light and batman supports bruce's social agendas by stopping crime that bruce wayne can't it also looks really nice roger robinson has a long career on bat books he did a good amount of this gotham knights run did a long run on azrael too i don't think the chessboard is quite right but I'll allow it. I just I found this issue very enjoyable for it telling a story of Batman that we don't often get and making Bruce Wayne more than just the mask, which is something we have lost. It felt like Mariko Tamaki was trying to do more with Bruce as a character in her run on detective but got dragged into fear state yep and so a lot of that stuff went by the wayside for fear state and nobody else has really tried rom v has got little bits of it starting as the orgoms are showing their agenda and prince orgom is showing interest in bruce wayne as a friend but when was the last time we had a real arc about Bruce Wayne? Mm, without having really anything to do with Batman? Yeah. Ugh. Outside of the Tamaki run where, you know, you were getting to know his neighbors and things. Mm-hmm. I mean, the last really great Bruce Wayne story we did is Cold Days. Yeah. But that is squarely about dealing with the Batman. Bruce Wayne doesn't have any friends with Selena as Bruce's principal love interest now, you don't need to worry about doing a Bruce Wayne story with a love interest because the love interest knows the secret. Bruce Wayne doesn't serve much of a purpose now. Eventually, he, Bruce is going to get his fortune back because that's just, we're going to eventually reset the status quo. Well, here's the thing though like, when was the last time that even factored into a story? True. We, we aren't even talking about the fact that Bruce doesn't have his money anymore. It might factor into Detective because the Orgums are trying to buy Wayne Manor. But I feel like we need to reestablish Bruce as part of Wayne Enterprises. And we need to start developing a Bruce Wayne supporting cast again. It also hurt that part of the story when Lucius suddenly knew the secret because Lucius was always Bruce's supporting character, not Batman's. And the minute Lucius knows that Bruce is Batman, then he becomes part of that world. 
and not part of Bruce's anymore. Even if he might have put it together, it might have been a Jim Gordon, sure I know, but I have plausible deniability situation over the years in places, but he's full-on participant in that world and has been for quite some time. Does Bruce Wayne have a supporting cast outside of the Bat cast? No, not anymore. So it feels like the Foxes stay in New York and you give Jace a title again. And when Bruce gets his money back and takes back Wayne Enterprises, you give him a new CFO, one who doesn't know and who he has to do a, you know, juggling act to still not make it clear he's Batman, but also have to be just competent enough that this CFO doesn't go to the board and be like, hey, this guy's an idiot. Uh, say, what's what's in this black uh, box budget item you got here? This $3 billion that goes to miscellaneous expenses. Right. There's all sorts of ways you can play that. You make a little office drama out of it. Reestablish the social circles of Gotham. During the, that 90s period, you knew that one side of the matter was the Drakes, and the other side was J. Devlin Davenport, who was everything that Bruce Wayne pretended to be. He really was. He was a rich asshole. And it was like, yeah, you, you, you need characters like that. Get Bruce involved in politics. Let him, not, not as a candidate, but mayoral race. Get people courting Bruce Wayne. Introduce his characters that way. There is an infinite number of ways to develop a supporting cast that uses Bruce Wayne as well as Batman. What if, though, Batman just fights a robot for like five issues? That's fine, as long as afterwards you get ten issues of Batman fighting street crime and having a life. You can do different types of stories, but it can't all be Batman fighting robots and Batman in weird alternate universes. Oh, I have been so disappointed by Chip Zdarsky's run, but there's time. And I also think I've been spoiled by Wayne Family Adventures, which does those kind of stories. I think it was two weeks ago, we see Bruce's newest nemesis, this soccer mom on the pta who keeps one-upping him and it's kind of delightful to see bruce be like oh i thought i was supposed to bring the snacks no you were on dessert not snacks karen yeah exactly and in the end he's like oh don't worry i called in a fleet of ice cream trucks pop that does that exact thing work in a series that isn't basically a light family drama featuring the bat characters no but the fact that he can have a life that isn't just batman is something that the comics haven't looked at since date night yeah even earlier i mean that's still batman i mean he's on a date with superman lois lane court of owls and that's when he's at least doing bruce wayne's stuff even you look at Eternal, the Bruce Wayne stuff there is incidental. It's there to forward the Batman plot. I want a story where Bruce Wayne does Bruce Wayne things. 
like this one. Now we're see we circled right back around to Bruce Wayne having an arc. But yeah, I, I'll get off my soapbox now and we'll rank this thing. Oh, that means it's time. Batman Gotham Knights, number 32, 24-7 on the big board. Give me an opening bid. Mm, let's see. I will give you a ceiling. Venom at 60. Okay. I can definitely deal with that. I, I was definitely thinking top 100. So, yeah. I can definitely see that. It is because right below that is black and white, which is you know vignettes, Granted, longer vignettes, but still they're all shorts. So I was trying to think about it in that respect. I'd probably put it above Hush at seventy. So I I really like the sixties for this. You read my mind. <laughs> I'm I'm thinking lower sixties. I don't think it could necessarily beat. 67 the first appearance of the joker as much as i liked oracle year one which is right below that that has that weirdly soft ending while this is pretty much solid all the way through so i could see it going as the new 68 in between the joker and oracle year one i like it all right so that does it for tonight next week It's stories of Batman fighting characters who are his opposite number. Two who are designed to be, and one who just might be the perfect fit. Spoiler alert. We're going to do some uh, Grendel stuff. Matt loves Grendel. Matt does love Grendel. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers. Dan Grote. June, conduit of outdated joke names. Jin, come on. Josh Wheel. Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum. Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sraggioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at comicsxf.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville! And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.